Hello and welcome to Technically Speaking, where scientists and engineers come together to chat about a common interest, share knowledge and satisfy some curiosity. I'm Laura and in this episode I'm joined by Ellie and Priyanka to talk about toxic things and what they do to our bodies. Ellie, your background is in zoology, so I think you've probably got quite a lot to contribute here. <laughs> well, something like that. There are loads of poisonous and venomous species in the animal world. So I think I'll talk first a little bit about uh, the difference. So in my mind, something that is poisonous versus something that is venomous. So venomous bites you and you get unwell or potentially even die. So that's venomous. And then poisonous is you bite it. So if an animal eats a toxic animal, so it bites something toxic, something poisonous, then it gets unwell. But if the thing doing the biting bites something, then usually that thing will then eat the thing that it has bitten. So yeah, we'll talk more about that later. Yeah, so you, I guess you get venomous snakes and poisonous frogs. Yeah. I guess is the classic example. Um, I also wonder, right, so if if I become a supervillain... <laughs> incredible this is a great start already <laughs> <laughs> what i do to people that i don't like um if i decide i'm going to leave something out for them to to ingest yeah i can be like the, the poison killer yeah definitely or if you want to go real super villain like animal human hybrid get fangs like a snake and then you can be venomous and you can bite people that you don't like exactly so i could be the venomous lady it depends on how i want to kill people exactly it's entirely your method of delivery <laughs> i like it i'll bear that in mind if i ever do decide to become a super villain <laughs> you heard it here first folks. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem very unlikely <laughs> Priyanka, your background in biochemistry is probably going to tell us about what effects toxins have on our bodies, right? Yeah, so basically we have about six or seven ways toxins can affect you. It ranges like throughout all the systems of the body. One of the main processes that I like to talk about is the neurotoxic effects, uh, where essentially toxins can inhibit transition of impulses by binding to enzymes at the synaptic terminals. So like those specific enzymes that are present over there kind of get blocked. So the electrical conduction doesn't go through. Obviously, there are a lot of processes, and I'm going to be talking about a couple of those a bit later. Okay, so I've heard of neurotoxins, and that's just that's one way in which a chemical can have an effect on the body. Yes, exactly. Cool. We're talking about chemical toxins, not, you know, people. <laughs> <laughs> whole different class of toxicity there. (laughs) I guess that means we should define what we mean by something that is toxic um, or what a toxin is specifically. I'd read something, some weird definition about a toxin is something that is made biologically, whereas if it's made by humans, it's a toxicant, which is a word I'd never come across before. Yeah, I didn't know I've heard that either. I would say, yeah, definitely something that is toxic is like naturally occurring in the environment like it's created within itself to be toxic for whatever reason which could be predator avoidance could be to stop people eating it all of those sorts of things but yeah like a man-made substance could also be toxic I guess but it's not how I would think of it more poisonous perhaps well that's it a lot of the dictionary definitions pretty much said a toxin is something that's poisonous (laughs) that's not a very helpful definition but I mean I guess I'd say that it's a substance that causes harm or damage to the body Mm -hmm. in some way uh, which could be by damaging cells or as Priyanka just gave an example of uh, by interfering with chemical signals or like the neurons so um, the ions that are being transmitted through pathways 
Um, is that what your lecturer said to you, Priyanka? <laughs> yeah, actually, yes. Yes. We were not too far from the truth. Um, so basically, how it works is that there are acetylcholinesterase enzymes at the synapses, which get inhibited by organophosphorus pesticides sometimes, which kind of block transmission of impulses. So that's where the neurotoxic effect kind of comes into play. But um, there's also toxins that affect the sodium potassium channels, for example, that can affect the permeability or like kind of block the transport pumps and just affect overall enzyme mechanism. But yeah, that's mostly how it works. One other point that you kind of brought up about like, you know, how toxins are essentially just poisonous things. It also kind of brings into play like what do we consider poisonous? Like how how do we classify poisonous things, right? So I presume someone must have eaten something or been bitten by something at some point and gotten, I want to say unwell, but then there are different levels of unwell. There's like dead in an instant. Mm-hmm. It's pretty extreme. Or there's just, I guess, vomiting. Is that caused by something that is toxic? Where I guess you're vomiting to get out of your system maybe, or maybe it's somehow caused a biological response that isn't just get this thing out of me it's this thing is making some mechanism act that is the thing that says you are now going to vomit but i'm also thinking in terms of like you know how we have like compounds that we can ingest but not specific animals or like vice versa like let's think about like capsaicin and stuff like the compound present in chilies is that really considered toxic because it's supposed to be like it's supposed to be toxic towards us it's supposed to be repellent towards mammals because like birds are supposed to be able to inject, ingest it completely fine because they don't have the receptors to feel the spice. But do we consider chili toxic to humans? <laughs> I mean, it is unpleasant, isn't it? People enjoy eating chili, like a little bit of heat in a curry is nice. But it's not, it doesn't feel pleasant in like the same way like it makes your mouth tingle or your lips burn or whatever like it's it's definitely triggering a response there in your mouth but yeah I guess the concentrations as well because you can build up like a tolerance to chili you can like train yourself to eat stronger and stronger chilies like those people that do chili eating contests which I could never enter <laughs> or like the Indian jeans <laughs> that put spice in every single thing even yogurt <laughs> you put spice in yogurt but the yogurt's what no, you need to get rid of that spice <laughs> No, girl, we put spice in yogurts as well. Like, that's a nice side dish to go with our rice and everything, which is also spicy, by the way. Even the rice is spicy. But I can never come to dinner at your house. I'm sorry. That's okay. I can barely handle it as well. (laughs) But is that true that there would be, like, specific genes that would code for something in the body that would be able to handle a toxin in a particular way? Does it depend on genetics? Or is that one of those sort of myths? It's just that... Indian people are growing um, up with a lot of spice. I'm actually not very sure, but I mean, it seems like it, right? Like we have developed a tolerance towards it. Like I know when I traveled to the UK, I'm really sorry to say, but food is so bland. I carry so many spices from home, <laughs> so I'm not like starving because I need that spice with me. But like, I think we just develop a tolerance towards it. I don't think it's, I don't think it could be genetic though. But then, because I'm thinking like, some animals can eat what we would consider like toxic plants because they've had that evolutionary they call it like an arms race like the plant will develop toxin to stop the animal eating it but then the animal will develop like some sort of enzyme or like antitoxin so it can get away with it right and it like just goes back and forth it doesn't taste toxic to the animal but the plant might be toxic to someone like you or me 
Wow. So so that plant and that animal are pretty much at war with each other, trying to outcompete through evolution. Yeah, pretty much. Wow. Like you can see it in quite a few examples where this has developed this and then the next thing will develop that. And then it's like, yeah, it's like a little battle of like, I will eat you. No, you won't. I will eat you. No, you won't. <laughs> Have you got any good examples of that? Because the first thing I think of is nettles. And like, I'm pretty sure I see cows eating nettles, but I am I break out in hives when I brush against nettles. Well, you can eat nettles. Like, people can eat nettles. You can eat nettle soup. You can. I have made nettle soup. But you destroy the, the irritant, the chemical, by boiling it, don't you? Yeah, which is, I think, what must happen. Like, if you chew something a lot, you can, like, change the chemical compounds that, like, are present. It's like sugary smoothies are much worse for you than like eating an apple because the blending of the sugar like changes the way the chemicals are so it like makes it worse like more sugary rather than just eating an apple which is a fact that I find horrible because I love smoothies (laughs) I find that really weird as well that just blending it would change the sugars yeah I can't see how that would work but I don't know enough about the chemistry of it yes it's funny as well because in the animal kingdom like animals can be both like you could be venomous and also poisonous so you could be like toxic on two levels which I think is so fun because you create your own venom through your genes but then what you eat can give you like poisons as well so then your skin becomes poisonous there's like a species of snake that is both poisonous and venomous which frankly is just showing off if you ask me So is that the snake has a tolerance to the poison? It doesn't get poisoned itself, but the poison just accumulates in its body. Yeah, so it's the Asian tiger snake. So it has like one toxin for its poisonous bite. Sorry, one venom, a toxic venom. And then it eats poisonous toads and then it stores that poison in its skin. So you can both be bitten by it and eat it and not come out very happy at the other end. (laughs) That is impressive and seemingly unnecessary. I can't be asked to defend myself. (laughs) I don't need to bite you though. It's fine. I'd lie here. <laughs> exactly. But that's the thing. Like, it's dual, right? It's become a great predator because it can poison the things it wants to eat. And also, like, no one wants to eat it because then it's poisonous. So it's like, it's one, basically. I'm sure some stuff yeah. still tries, though. Usually, everything is trying to eat everything else. Well, yeah. Otherwise, why would it bother trying to double down on being dangerous? Yeah, exactly. There must, there's got to be an advantage, which is. The fact that things don't want to eat it. Maybe that frog's really tasty. Yeah, that's also a good point. I probably wouldn't try it, but it could be great if you're an Asian tiger snake. Maybe. I feel like I'm kind of missing some more information on what actually happens in the human body. So your example of blending fruit somehow makes the sugars more potent, which just sounds a bit like magic to me. But (laughs) aside from this movie example, there are actual known ways in which a toxin will act on your body to do harm. Yeah, so we were talking about this earlier as well. Like we were thinking about thalidomide, which is like a human-made toxin. Like it was supposed to be a drug that helps uh, women with morning sickness. But then since it has like a teratogenic action, it kind of crosses that barrier between mother and fetus and essentially can affect the development of the baby as well. So they were born without limbs. So I guess that's one of the ways that we can, like, you know, how toxins do harm. Another way toxins can harm us is they can take out or like knock off the metal ions in um, enzymes or proteins. So for example, in heme, we have uh, like hemoglobin, we've got the iron metal kind of bonded to four different groups, if that makes sense. So then we have toxins that can knock those off and essentially render hemoglobin useless. 
which can then affect circulation, oxygenation, and they cause oxidative stress and all of that stuff. Oh, okay. So because hemoglobin needs iron ions. Yes, iron ions. <laughs> <laughs> Tongue twister. Yeah. And it can do something to, to remove those ions, did you say? Mm-hmm. So you said the ions attached to four different groups. Those groups still stay yeah, there? Yeah, the groups would technically stay there because they're also kind of bound to each other. But if I'm not wrong, but um, it's kind of useless because the like the biggest function was carried out by the iron ions <laughs> in hemoglobin because that's what bound to the um, two oxygen groups during like the whole respiration process. So if you can't transport the oxygen, yeah, I can see how that would create problems. Yeah, <laughs> our cells would die. <laughs> There's quite um, a horrible one in the back in the snake world. There's like boom slang venom. And it's got melaproteinases, metalloproteinases in it. Mm-hmm. And they interact with the way blood clots and they like destroy the capillary blood vessels. So then it's like both causing clots and then like blocking the blood vessels. And then that can cause strokes and heart attack. Oh my God. That just seems like a horrible way to die. Slowly having your blood system destroyed by the venom of the snake wow so if you don't if it destroys your capillaries isn't that what sort of feeds your skin and everything else it's what it gets what gets your blood into like pretty much everywhere it needs to go all the little areas yeah. so you'd have what like bits of your body just dying like massive internal bleeding yeah mm. <laughs> wonderful <laughs> oh gosh that is grim one question i would want to be answered is how much of that particular venom do i need in my body for it to have that effect if I injected a microliter, is that enough to do any damage? Or would it do a little bit of damage, but I could recover? Ooh, that is a really good question. I don't know how much boom slang venom like, would, like, would take to kill like the average human woman. But I'm going to guess probably not that much. I feel like these animals usually, they go hard or they go home. Like They have a lot of like potency in their venom and they like bite you once and you're, you're done. <laughs> but I could be wrong in that maybe a boomstang is not too bad and you could be. and then like obviously like zoos and stuff have dangerous snake species and store anti-venom as well so like if the keepers get bitten for whatever reason then you're not automatically whisked off to an ambulance no so maybe you should be but they yeah they can give you something to help how does the anti-venom work do you know if the venomous thing has injected you with something that inhibits some biological function by Let's take the, the example of Priyanka gave us where you knock iron ions off hemoglobin. Does the antivenom do something that prevents that iron from being removed or would it compete? I think so. I think the idea is that it like binds to it. So if like the venom is, is like the foreign body and then it would like neutralize it by like wrapping around it, like stop it getting to its target, I think. Okay, because I can also see that it would change the chemical structure, maybe, or make the the venom break down in some way. Yeah, I think it's a little bit like um like a vaccine response. In like they'll give a low dose of the venom to like a sheep or a cow or something, and wait for it to like you know do the white blood cell thing and generate the antibodies, and then that is then used as an anti venom because it's like already protected. Like it's already had that sort of situation happen. Ah, because I guess I think about this more from a chemistry point of view rather than using biomolecules to fight a chemical. Biology to fight biology. <laughs> totally, you know. <laughs> I guess there are things in our own food that could be considered 
poisonous or toxic if you eat enough of it like uh, mercury in seafood or apple pips contain is it arsenic or cyanide one of the two cyanide wasn't it it's one of those things that i thought I've eat, i eat apple pips quite a lot and they don't bother me and my tiny little rats quite happily eat apple pips and they're fine and the apple pip is obviously much bigger to them than it is to me so it should be a higher concentration so i'm like yeah apple pips are yeah. fine <laughs> They're not toxic. Well, maybe it's like the potency again, like it differs, right? Like it would be so diluted that wouldn't affect us if we have like one or two at a time. But say we have like 50 or we just make like an apple seed pie or something. How many apple pips do you have to stockpile? You need like an entire orchard's worth of apple pips. There's definitely cyanide. It can't be that high because otherwise we wouldn't be able to eat apples, right? So it must be literally like an orchard full of apple pips. Or maybe it's because like, it depends what that cyanide's bound to, right? If it's bound up in another molecule in such a way that it can't interact with your body, then it might be just one of the sort of urban myths. Like, yeah, it contains this thing that could be toxic, but in this form, it's fine. Oh, apparently it would take between 150 to several thousand crushed seeds to cause cyanide poisoning. So so I think having an apple a day, you'll be all right. Isn't that one of those things you can uh, build up a resistance to, though? There are certain kinds of poisonings that you know notable figures have allegedly been told to build up a resistance against. I don't know how true any of this is. I'm sure there was a guy that like ate mercury every day to build up a resistance because he was like really terrified of being poisoned by his enemies. <laughs> and then he like you know like ate a little bit every day, and then he did build up a resistance. But then he wanted to like commit suicide or something to avoid being captured so then of course he took mercury to poison himself but it didn't work because he'd spent his whole life eating mercury to avoid poisoning oh my god but i can't remember who that was and maybe that is an urban myth but i'm sure that is a thing that does sound a bit like an odd thing to do like contradictory i've built up this resistance and now i'll try and kill myself with the same resistance rather than just picking a different toxin yeah just pick a different poison there's plenty <laughs> go and find a bloom slang like why are you hanging around <laughs> uh, i guess similar to the intent with the thalidomide example that was meant to be beneficial but it, it turned out we had other consequences i guess there are some things that are considered toxic but do have benefits Oh, yes, actually, there are a few chemicals that can be used as like a benefit for humans. So basically, there's one that we use for chemotherapy because it has like a, it has what's called like a cytostatic action. What it does is that it inhibits protein and DNA synthesis. So hypothetically, we stop DNA from like replicating, causing cell cycle arrest, causing um, cells to not be able to divide into more cells, especially if they're tumor cells. That's the principle behind these chemicals. But then the problem is that it has a lot of off-target effects. Like any of the cells can like just stop dividing and causes like tissues to be degraded and things like that. But yeah, it is like one of those chemicals that we can use for chemotherapy. And there is like poppy seeds, which contain opium. Those are used to create morphine and opiates used for, you know, pain relief after surgeries and everything for patients with chronic pain. Even though opioids are technically toxic for us, like they are cardiotoxic, we can isolate specific compounds which have the anesthetic properties to provide that pain relief. So it's essentially extracting like the good qualities out of toxins. Okay. I always assumed with morphine that it was just, again, it was the concentration. A low amount is anaesthetic. A higher amount will kill you. But from what you're saying, it's not. It's that there are sort of almost different flavours that you can have. 
<laughs> yeah, I guess. So basically, I was reading this article, and it's like the papaverin group of opium alkaloids are very toxic, but then they also contain anesthetic activity that's separate to its toxicity. So it's kind of like both of them exist and like, you know, simultaneously. It's just making sure you don't ingest enough to activate that toxic effect. That is amazing that you can like separate it and be like, oh, I'm just going to take this bit and that will, you know, help someone recover from surgery. Whereas if you take the wrong bit, you could be in real trouble. Mm. (laughs) Oh, gosh. This explains why when I did drugs and alcohol tests for various employments, they always said don't eat poppy seeds in the days beforehand because they can show up as a drug you probably shouldn't be taking. (laughs) Poppy seeds contain very small amounts. And actually, they are culturally, they're accepted in a lot of cultures. It's one of those things like they're beneficial as well as harmful. The moderation is key. (laughs) It can be all about quantity, can't it? Like a little bit is fine. But if you eat too much, then yeah. I also find it fascinating that it's like different toxins, like there's hemotoxins and neurotoxins and cardiotoxins, which I just learned for a thing from Priyanka. <laughs> but like, it's incredible that they like have developed over the years to like target, you know, your nervous system or your circulatory system or your heart or your brain. Like it's kind of horrible to think about these so many different ways that they could hurt you. <laughs> but we still ingest them. Like <laughs> we're eating them anyway. <laughs> A really good example of that is alcohol. And they always say like it's 14 units you should have in a week, but spread over that week. And here are the really dire consequences if you consume too much. I was trying to look into what effect alcohol has on the human body and specifically like what biomechanisms it acts on. And it sounds like no one really knows what all these mechanisms are. They've just sort of observed the effects of drinking too much alcohol. I mean, eventually it's like liver damage, right? That's like the main, if you become get, you know, people with alcoholism, and then like the liver is like the first organ that packs up that sort of pop culture knowledge more than any real scientific backing. But yeah, I never thought of like alcohol being toxic, but I guess, yeah, it has a negative effect, right? It- yeah. And you can get alcohol poisoning on a relatively short time scale. Like even just like one really heavy night of drinking where you consume far too much is enough to knock you unconscious. But from the, the few papers that i sort of dipped into it didn't really explain precisely what was happening in the body it sort of alluded that certain mechanisms were being inhibited but they couldn't really say why which i thought seemed odd because alcohol is quite a simple molecule or alcohol molecules are quite simple you would think understanding their action would be quite simple but i guess not the human body is really complicated right <laughs> yeah i guess so and it's also been around for so long you think there's so many studies about alcohol and like the effect on your brain and your heart and your like health in general like you thought people would have a better understanding of what it's doing, but I guess it's doing maybe so many things at once that it's hard to get a handle on all of them. Yeah, that's what I figured. If you were going to do like a really controlled scientific experiment, you'd have to isolate all these things in some way, which to me sounds like you sort of need to artificially create little bits of cells and bits of the human body. <laughs> I don't know if that's even feasible. Can you grow like some heart cells in yeah. a dish. People could do that now, right? Definitely. Well, yeah, people have still kept that culture tissues. That's a thing, right? I've heard that. That is definitely a thing. Good to know. I'm, I'm the least biologically minded person here, <laughs> having not done biology since A-levels. So you guys will know more than I do. At work, I put a heart cell, like a cultured heart cell beating on our social media. If you trawl through IFLS, you can find it. They like grew beating heart cells. I don't know how. That is a step too far from my biology knowledge, but it was really cool. Hmm. Isn't that what like a lot of cell cultures are? Like we have 
what they call HeLa cells, which are like cancer cells that we essentially just got once and then we just keep regrowing the exact same culture line again and again for multiple experiments. And it's like one massive culture that people get shipped to their respective labs and then you culture it even more and they can like perform experiments like drug experiments and stuff on it. Is that what that is? Wow. Is this where the idea for like 3D printing organs comes from, that they can take those cell cultures and extrude them through a nozzle? This sounds really weird. No, I think that is like potentially like a future thing that will happen, that they're like trying to like 3D print organs and stuff, which is mind blowing to me that that would be possible. But I guess if you can like culture it into a material, then why not? I don't know if that would work. You'd need so much though, because you'd need like muscle and veins and yeah and you need to specialize all those cells like but then you need to kind of extract the different functions from stem cells like you need to extract specific lineages which is going to be another pain and then we need to make sure that they aren't rejected in the patient's body so you need like all those biomarkers and stuff Uh, maybe someone will come up with some novel way of using toxins to help that process somehow if toxins (laughs) act on particular cells in particular ways then maybe toxins can be used somehow to encourage a cell to do a particular thing i don't know that sounds like bollocks as well (laughs) (laughs) i like the idea of it though i'd like to think that that was a a thing that could happen in the future (laughs) it's what toxins can do for you not what you can do for toxins Some more ways in which they can be beneficial other than uh, pain relief and uh, cancer therapy. I do wonder, though, does that mean there is some way that we could get superpowers from ingesting something or being bitten by something? It's got to be, right? Like, if a snake can eat a toad and get poisonous skin, surely I can, right? (laughs) Like, I'm not saying I want poisonous skin, but I would like to have it as an option. Hmm. Spider-Man got bitten, right? Oh, but that's radioactive. Yeah. Which I guess is also sort of toxic. It is toxic, right? Like it has radiotoxic yeah. effects. <laughs> General safety assessments I used to do, chemotoxic and radiotoxic effects. And again, that's all about again, it's sort of about concentration. It's how much you're exposed to and how quickly. Does it destroy the cells before the cells can be repaired? How do I stop it destroying my cells and like get it to build shooty webs out of my wrists instead? I can't answer that, but Apparently, one way you can protect your cells is using alcohol. <laughs> so I need to be drunk and also bitten by a radiotoxic spike. Yeah, if you could somehow bathe the correct cells in the correct concentration of alcohol. Uh, I feel like I should know how this mechanism works, but I'm presuming the radiation causes the alcohol to be broken down in a particular way, and maybe the fragments help prepare the DNA somehow. Again, that's probably not quite right. So hang on, if I was drunk and then I took this, it would like break down the alcohol in my system and therefore make me less drunk. So it's really the ultimate hangover <laughs> cure. I have absolutely no idea if that's true. I should really <laughs> check with some <laughs> colleagues in radiation chemistry before saying that is what happens. <laughs> Wait, are we saying that Andrew Garfield was drunk when he was bitten by that spider in the lab during his internship? Might have been. Maybe, maybe <laughs> that was how he be, actually became Spider-Man. He was just always drunk when he was Peter Parker. Wasn't he a child? Wasn't he like 16 yeah. or something on a school trip? He was a minor, yeah. He had a bit of a rough upbringing, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so what we get from this episode is that Peter Parker needs therapy. He got over it. He, became, he was a good guy, right? He was Spider-Man. He was yeah, fine. He was helping people. He's in the Avengers now, right? He's happy. Spider-Man has feelings as well. <laughs> 
A slightly more serious, but also not serious question for you, Ali. What happens if a venomous snake bites itself? Oh my god. I mean, that is, I guess, theoretically possible. I think nothing. So because they have the venom stored in their uh, mouths and their glands, they could, I suppose, theoretically die from blood loss if they bit themselves, but they wouldn't die from the venom because they have that like DNA, genetic, molecular level to be like not affected by their own venom. Otherwise, that would just be a really, really unfortunate day, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, what are the chances of a snake biting itself? That seems like a really obvious safety mechanism. Don't do any harm to yourself. Yeah, what's the chance of any animal? Like if a lion bites itself, like it's not going to end well, is it? So, I mean, A, don't bite yourself in the first place. But yeah, if you're venomous as well, that is an extra problem. But I'm pretty sure they've got like the antibodies or the anti whatever they need. But it's not, it's not a problem. Fair enough. So when you were talking about getting anti-venom, one way would be to just extract it from the snake itself. Yeah, they do this. So if you've ever seen like wildlifey shows or like the ones where they like go out into the bush and poke sticks at snakes and things, they like people in zoos can like extract venom. They get basically they get a jam jar and a like permeable lid and they put the fangs of the snake through the jam jar and then all the venom like collects at the bottom. And then they can use that venom to like then make antivenom, which is cool. And yeah, like really terrifying when you see it done. Yeah, I think I just had some idea in my head that if the venom is made in particular glands, it's sort of contained away from the rest of the snake's body. So it wouldn't really need to have its own anti-venom defense mechanism in the rest of its body. It would just know not to bite itself. It's like how we know not to bite our, you know, bite ourselves, because apparently like our fingers have the same consistency as carrots, but we can't bite them because we have the survival instincts not to. Yeah, it makes sense intuitively, but I'd never thought of my finger as having the same consistency as a carrot for the reason that you just said, like I'd never try and deliberately cut through my finger, <laughs> but I chop carrots up all the time. I'm sure my finger is much more squashy than a carrot. Carrots are quite cool. brittle. Oh, the boat. Oh. Yeah, I feel like it would be more difficult <laughs> to saw through your own finger with a knife than it would be to cut a carrot up but you just said it's not you can just go one chop and that's it oh it reminds me of that film where the guy cut his arm off after getting stuck in the ravine oh yeah that was unpleasant it's a good thing he wasn't bitten by a snake though <laughs> yeah he survived i mean he lost his arm but he survived all's well that ends well right yeah i feel like that's probably a very good point to end the episode as well <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've absolutely no idea what we've what we've yeah <laughs> what we've come to at this point. Five different tangents. <laughs> we did, we did indeed. We defined what toxic is. Yes. Priyanka gave some examples of what happens in the body. She talked about binding of metal ions and inhibiting how synapses work. I learned that synapses have other enzymes in them, which I never knew. And yeah, we did kind of ramble around a bit about toxins that are beneficial and ways in which human-made toxins have had some unfortunate consequences in a very weird conversation about how chilies may or may not be toxic to different animals, I think. <laughs> I was always told that if you don't want uh, cats to mess in your garden, to put chilli powder out to like dissuade them, whether that's because it's toxic or it just smells bad. I'm not entirely sure. Is there a way you could do an experiment to find out? Obviously, you can't just leave the chili powder around because how do you prove the hypothesis which one is it yeah if anyone is looking for a thesis let us know because we've got a question for you <laughs> yeah how do you tell what the biological option of chili is on a cat <laughs> how do you isolate which cells it affects oh <laughs> now that i've summed up 
<laughs> We've gone off on a random tangent again. We're back down to like growing cat cells in a lab. <laughs> I think this is probably a very good point to draw the conversation to a close. So if you want to ask us, what the hell are you guys talking about? You can find us on Twitter or you can email us. There are loads of ways to get in touch. And if you quite liked this utterly ridiculous episode, we would really appreciate it if you would contribute a bit of money to our coffee fund. And the link to do that is in our bio. Until next time, thanks for listening. The views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them. They do not represent any industry or organisation. If you enjoyed listening to these views, it would really help us out if you could rate us, leave a review and tell a friend. This podcast was sponsored by no one, but if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering, please get in touch.